Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Danny Nobis, I'm the chair of the Freud Museum London, and uh, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome you all for tonight's event, which is uh, all about Paul Verhaag. <laughs> um, and uh, I know that quite a few of you have become regulars of the museum uh, over the years, but for those of you who are new to, to the museum and to our program of events and conferences, I, uh, well, I hope, first of all, that you'll take the opportunity of being here to, to have a look around, uh, if not so much in this room, uh, especially downstairs, and, and to, to absorb a bit of, of the atmosphere that remains of, uh, of Freud's presence. But I would also encourage you to, uh, to have a look at our autumn program of events and conferences, which, uh, which is ever so exciting. Um, and to visit it on a regular basis because we, we do add uh, events as the, uh, as the autumn term progresses. Uh, and I think there's another event uh, going on tomorrow night. Um, in, in this very room, in three weeks' time, we are also launching a new exhibition called Freud and, and Eros, which, uh, which promises to, to be, be really exciting. And, and that's going to coincide with, with a program of, of talks and, uh, and workshops running into the new year. So, so please have a look and, and come along to, to whatever interests you. Now, um, tonight, tonight we are here to, uh, to listen to Professor Paul Verhaag, who is a, a former colleague of mine uh, at, at the University of Ghent in Belgium. Uh, Paul and I go back at least 25 years, a, a long, a long time. Don't go into it. <laughs> no, 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 that would take me way too long, don't worry. Um, so I've known Paul for, Paul for a very long time. We are, we are here to listen to Paul talking about, about his new book, What About Me? The Struggle for Identity in a Market-Based Society, which, um, which is his most uh, recent book, but... Uh, over the years, he's uh, authored uh, a great many books, um, and I'm not going to take you through, through all the titles, but I just want to single out Love in a Time of Loneliness, because I think it's recently been republished by Karnak in, in a new edition. There's also On Normality and Other Disorders, I hope I say that correctly, which, which won the Goethe Prize in 2007 for Psycholytic Research. Uh, there is a book called The End of Psychotherapy, which hasn't been translated no. into English just yet, but I'm, I'm sure it's going to happen sometime soon. And there's, of course, the, uh, the most recent book called, uh, called What About Me? Um, Paul is going to talk about the book for about 20, 25 minutes, uh, I think, and, uh, and then he's going to be in conversation with, with Lisa Abin-Yanesi, uh, who probably doesn't need an introduction, but in case you don't know Lisa, she's uh, an award-winning novelist, scholar, writer, broadcaster, cultural commentator whose uh, who's, uh, most recent book is called The Trials of Passion um, but she may be uh, particularly known to you for her work with John Forrester on a book called uh, Freud's Women uh, but also for Mad, Bad and Sad obviously, uh, which was uh, quite an achievement uh, a good five years ago and which also was turned then into an exhibition here at the museum so Paul's going to have a conversation with Lisa after his talk and then we're going to open it to the audience for a short question and answer session, and then afterwards um, there's going to be some book signing going on downstairs. Okay. Over to you. We were having drinks. With, 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 with some drinks, with some, with some drinks on the side. All right. Please welcome Paul Verhaag. Is the mic working? First of all, thank you for the invitation. It's, of course, an honor to be... This one. You've got one. You've got a lapel. Okay. It's an honor to be here in this place uh, to be able to introduce my book to you. I guess most of you are working in, or at least familiar with the mental health uh, care sector. And then you will know that nowadays it is widely assumed that mental disorders such as depression, ADHD, uh, anxiety disorders, etc., etc., that they are supposed to be expressions of underlying neurobiological processes and possibly genetically based as well. And today, medication is a solution. Talking is often considered only a supplementary support. My position as an analyst is diametrically 
opposed to this. In my opinion, many psychiatric problems have a hidden and somewhat insidious social moral undertones. Individuals are expected to live up to an ideal image that society imposes upon us. And it is the individual's failure and even their success in the plight to meet this ideal that makes them sick. This is of course a revival of the classic Freudian thesis uh, proposed in civilization and its discontents. And that's why I'm so happy to present the book over here. Of course, Freud's vision was far more nuanced than the simplistic anti-society attitude so often ascribed to him. What Freud suggested was that between society and the individual, there is a point of tension where an individual's desire should and indeed must conform to the norms and expectations of society. The question is, what are the different forms that this point of tension can take? And one must assume that different social structures will lead to different processes of identity formation and hence to different kinds of mental disorders. And that's the main thesis, of course. And this reasoning brought me to, this, to distinguish between three different types of society which always have a serious impact on identity and on psychopathology. I call them the Victorian society, the post-May 68 society, and finally the Enron society. Alternatively, we could call them the age of the right orgasm, the age of compulsory free love, and finally our age, that of purchasing every any possible enjoyment. I can be quite brief on the Victorian model, because it is the model with which we are most familiar. It is a patriarchal society in which the accent is entirely on prohibition. Furthermore, it is explicitly coupled with a traditional class structure and a dominant religion. There is hardly room for the individual who merely forms part of a coercive society. And it is no accident that psychoanalysis uh, emerged out of this kind of society. And an over-coercive morality came to be seen as a cause of mental illness. As you all know, Freud did not hesitate to adopt a clear ethical position on this relationship between society and the individual. Neurosis is at least partly created by an, an excessively strict moral code in which sexuality finds pathological outlets through neurotic symptoms. Therefore, the implicit norm for successful treatment is that the individual should achieve orgasm in the right way and not succumb to neurasthenic masturbation, angst-ridden abstinence, hysterical frigidity or obsessive fear of germs. For therapeutic reasons, according to Freud, the analyst will often have to combat an overstrict superego as well as what he calls the cultural superego. At the same time, he is convinced that the analyst should never adopt the role of savior or guru. The aim of treatment is to give the subject enough freedom to make his own ethical choices. This brings us to May 68, the effect of which is the reverse of the Victorian model. This is reflected in the particular developments in the field of human rights. The Declaration of Human Rights of 1948 was intended primarily for specific groups. It dealt with the rights of women, of children, and it also involved com community concerns such as the right to education, medical care, and so on. But from the 60s, it became increasingly concerned with the liberation of individuals. It was the era of the autonomous self and the authentic personality, preferably enjoying as many rights as possible. And the problems people brought to the consulting room did not differ that much from those of the previous era, but yet people expected and received different answers. 
psychotherapy was also called in the general sense of liberation, and instead of the Victorian repression, we had the post-68 imposition. And everything that had been for, and everything that had been forbidden now became compulsory. And so in a relatively short period, the patriarchal accent on duty was replaced by an obligatory indulgence. The effect of this became particularly clear in the 80s when the welfare state in Western Europe seemed to consist of a collection of individuals who each took their own rights for granted. Nowadays, it is fashionable to whack the finger at May 68. The pendulum has swung in the opposite direction, people are far more egoistic, show little community spirit, and so on and so on. Your own Theodore Dalrymple gives an eloquent illustration of this, and his position is very simple in many meanings of the word. The current flute of psychological disorders is a result of today's self-indulgent society and is being sustained by therapists, meaning by you, who keep people in treatment far too long. His books are full of juicy anecdotes which, for the layman, seem extremely convincing. But anecdotes, of course, do not constitute scientific proof, and furthermore, he is not well informed about recent socio-economic developments. The welfare state, which he considers to lie at the heart of the problem, has had gone one foot in the grave ever since the 90s. And that people misuse the system is undeniable. Just think about people working in the financial sector. But such a culture of profiteering cannot explain the growing numbers of suicide among adults and the so-called behavioral disorders among children. My reasoning, neither profiteering nor the rising suicide rates are the results of an over-indulgent society. It's rather the opposite. Together with extreme individualism, they are the result of the third social model that is in, that in many respects is new, and which I call the Enron model, referring to the name of an American multinational. It is this model that has created today's discontent, although discontent is much too weak a term in this case. Not so long ago, our society was determined by the interplay between at least four discourses, political, religious, ideological, and economic, and the cultural one. Today, they have all but disappeared. There is only one dominant discourse still standing, and that is the economic one. We live in a neoliberal society in which everything has become a product. And furthermore, this is linked to a so-called meritocracy, in which everyone is held responsible for their own success or failure. The myth of the self-made man. If you succeed, you have only yourself to thank. If you fail, you have only yourself to blame. And the most important criterion is profit. Whatever you do, it must bring in cash. That's the message. In socio-economic terms, we are speaking of a neoliberal meritocracy. The neoliberal is convinced that every market regulates itself and consequent, consequently should be steered as little as possible so that everyone has an equal chance. That sounds fine, but the result of this model is exactly the opposite. Inequality increases in leaps and bounds together with regulations. Instead of the citizen being a part of a community, we now have the individual in direct opposition to the organization. As long as meritocracy limits itself to ensuring that the top boy or girl in the class wins a scholarship and later goes on to earn a good salary, few people would object. But today, Meritocracy is deeply embedded in a high-tech, globalized, pseudo-free market that is that combination which is fatal for society as a community. It becomes very clear when you look at the area of tension between the individual and society. Until recently, this area was controlled 
by a traditional code of ethics, which was solidly rooted in a narrative. And, the ethical, and this ethical system has now disappeared, together with the grand narratives. Instead of the earlier ethical system, today we live under the obligation of a moral fiction, that is the fiction of systematic efficiency. Beneath that mask, it is not very difficult to see that the goal is just more profit. And within this model, everything has become a commodity. Today, our primary duty is to enjoy by any means possible, as long as we pay for it. Omnipresent advertising illustrates how everything has been eroticized, but the main obligatory enjoyment is not sex any longer, but shopping. Also, what were once our rights have now become products, products to purchase. In a neoliberal environment, health care and a decent education cost a fortune. And education is extremely important because within this model, the individual has only one duty. He must succeed and make full use of every opportunity open to him. By virtue of the meritocratic system, success can, success can necessarily only occur in competition with one's colleagues. Solidarity should only be considered if it returns a profit in the short term. In the American Enron multinational, this became known as the rank and yang system. The achievements of every employee were judged competitively and on that basis one-fifth of them were sacked every year after being publicly humiliated by having their name, photo and failure posted on the company's website. In a very short time almost every employee started to lie and cheat, which ultimately led to the company's bankruptcy. Nevertheless, today, various versions of the Enron model are in operation everywhere. So, what effect does this have on our new discontent? Or more generally, on the tension between the individual and society, and on the identity disorders that accompany it? Since the 90s, the classic area of tension between society and citizen has shifted to an opposition, to an opposition between the individual and the organization. And this change reflects a generalized management culture in which efficiency is the highest, if not the only, good. There is an opposition because the, in, the individual does not identify himself with the organization and is certainly no longer prepared to sacrifice himself for it. He is only interested in what it can provide for him as an individual. Without an ethical system, everything is permitted as long as it is not explicitly forbidden by the contract. The contract, that is the core of neoliberal morality. Diametrically opposed to individual rights stands the organization. The organization which wants to limit the demands of the individual, supposedly in the public interest, though in fact only in the interest of the organization. Since there is no convincing communal ethical system to express that public interest, the new moral criterion becomes purely utilitarian. In concrete terms, this means that everything is measured, quantified, preferably literally in terms of production, growth and profit. And to conduct these quantifications, each organization must make frequent evaluations, which within a short space of time take on the air of formal inspections. After all, everyone is now suspect because everyone is out only for their own profit. In addition, organizations themselves are led by people who, as individuals, are equally concerned with their own advantage 
and consequently they are even more suspect. Hence they will do need to be checked and evaluated all the time, raising the question of who should assess the inspectors and so on and so on. In such a society, the authority that was once exercised by identifiable figures, that authority disappears and is replaced by a bureaucratic power within an anonymous organization functioning on the basis of increasingly detailed legal contracts. And here begins the negative spiral between individuals and organizations who trust each other less and less as time goes by. Precisely because an overarching ethical system has disappeared, the organization has to introduce ever more regulations combined with ever more registration systems to ensure that regulations are observed. Hence the exponential growth of CCTV, monitoring everyone and everything together with public and secret evaluation systems. The individual, for his part, increasingly feels that his rights are being infringed and distances himself from the organization. In concrete terms, everybody tries to escape as much as possible from the proliferation of regulations and registries. The inevitable consequence is a climate of anxiety and uncertainty. In my opinion, on the work floor, the most important effect has been a shift from intrinsic to extrinsic motivation. In the earlier models, every professional could to a certain degree decide what he considered to be important. And this implied internal motivation, an intrinsic drive to do well, and an associated sense of responsibility. Nowadays, the criteria are imposed from outside, with no account taken of local or individual differences, resulting in a boring uniformity, uniformity of products and performances. And these external criteria imply that motivation to perform well no longer comes from within, but are merely a response to externally imposed standards. Almost every study into motivation concludes that this has an extremely negative effect, both on the employee's input, on the work satisfaction, and on the quality of the work. After a number of years, this leads to the disappearance of any kind of work ethics, and subsequently of any ethics at all. In its place comes external regulation in the form of protocols and closed camera systems. After all, if I may no longer judge the quality of my own work, if the standards are imposed from outside, I shall not feel particularly involved or responsible. And that is only one step away from not caring at all, so long as I stay within the imposed limits. At that moment, ethics are going down the drain. Every social order determines both development of the identity as well as its potential disorders. Imposing a strict superego, Victorian society produced neurotic citizens who, as a group, were always ready to fight for their own patriarch against that of another group. Our Enron society produces individual consumers who fight each other. For French analyst Jacques Lacan, the command of the postmodern superego is enjoy. And the malaise of the Victorian had to do with too much community and too little enjoyment. The current discontent of the postmodern individual is the result too much enjoyment and too little community. We have to enjoy ourselves madly. Or to express it more correctly, we have to consume ourselves madly. The snake in the grass is that we must earn it 
by being successful, which is our duty. And constant competition with others, and of course, such a system leads to what Thomas Hobbes had already framed as the homo homini lupus est. Such a meritocratic system very rapidly starts to privilege certain personality characteristics and to punish others as a way of maintaining itself. Since, since a competitive character is a must, individualism soon takes over. Flexibility is also highly desirable, but the price is a superficial and unstable identity. Solidarity becomes an expensive luxury, and its place is taken by temporary coalitions whose main purpose is to gain more from them than one loses. Strong social bonds with colleagues are virtually excluded. Emotional commitment to one's work hardly exists, and there is certainly no loyalty to the company or to the organization. In this connection, the typical defense mechanism of the intellectual is cynicism reflecting the failure of the refusal to commit oneself. Individualism, profiteering, and the me-culture are becoming quasi-endemic and are the clear consequences of this Enron model and not of the welfare state in the past. Below the surface, there is fear, ranging from a fear of failure to a wider social anxiety. The latter is a psychiatric category, social anxiety, that has increased spectacularly in recent years and the pharmaceutical industry has benefited greatly. I see the results of this in the increasing diagnosis of autism among young people as well. In my opinion, this rise in autism has little to do with the traditional autism but reflects the growth of social isolation as an escape from the threat imposed by the other. The compulsory competition created by financial meritocracy makes it increasingly necessary to carry out, to carry out evaluations in the workplace. And this leads to a decline in autonomy and a decline in the individual's sense of agency. In combination with the growing dependency on external and constant, constantly shifting evaluation criteria, it causes what the American sociologist Richard Sennett describes as an infantilization of the workforce. Adult people who give in to childish birds burst of anger, are jealous about trivialities, tell white lies, are often deceitful, enjoy the misfortune of others, and harbor petty feelings of revenge. Teasing, was once, teasing and bullying was once a problem on the school floor. Now it can be seen in the workplace as a typical symptom of powerlessness, whereby frustration is taken out on the weakest. It is part of the so-called bicycle reflex, kick downwards, push upwards. As well, as a declining sense of agency, there is also a general encroachment on self-respect and identity. Both depend to a large extent on receiving recognition from the other. This is the lesson that rings true from Hegel to Lacan. For Hegel, recognition by others lies at the heart of our self-awareness. And Lacan sees identity developing from the phrase Tu es cela, that is what you are, with the underlying motive being the fear that the other no longer needs us. Richard Sennett expresses the very same idea when his modern-day employee asks, Who needs me? For a growing number of people, the answer is, no one. They have become superfluous and even invisible. The result is a humiliation, guilt and shame because one hasn't made it, because one is a loser, which is one of the most important recently coined terms of abuse. It is all the more distressing because it is usually directed at people who, in spite of their work, have fallen by the wayside. 
After a number of years, because of the system itself, there emerges a clear polarization between winners and losers. And furthermore, the losers are told that it is their own fault, although their own experience has been one of steady loss of voice and autonomy. Opposite them are the winners. Some bold sociologists have claimed that in an intensive meritocracy, the most successful ones display a psychopathic profile. Indeed, in this context, it is interesting to see that in the Bible of neoliberalism, and that is Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, that in that Bible, greed is put forward as the most important human virtue. The self-perpetuating nature of the system has to do with the preferential treatment accorded to the winners. In a short time, it leads to a system of winner-takes-it-all, in which the middle group becomes steadily smaller, and the gap between the top and the bottom grows even wider. Increasing social inequality correlates very clearly with greater social problems and greater mental problems, with failure at school and criminality, as well as a whole range of illnesses. The sociological studies by Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett provide overwhelming statistical material on this subject and should be compulsory reading for every politician. To conclude, because I've been talking far too long, to conclude, in the Victorian period of double morality, Freud took a stand against an over-repressive society. During the May 68 period, the majority of analysts sensibly said nothing. Today, that is no longer an option, because the present system is ethically reprehensible. A society that allows social networks to be systematically un- undermined by the way in which work, in which labor is organized, is signing its own debt. Barrett. Thank you. Sorry for talking too long. Not at all, not at all. Um, I just want to say before we we chat with each other for a few minutes and then bring all of you in, that um, having read this book, I I think it's one that you really must all read. It's a very important critique of neoliberalism. It comes from an angle that we don't necessarily see very often in the English-speaking world. And um, I, I can't recommend it too highly. Um, so do when you go downstairs buy it because Paul has given you a little bit of the surface of the argument but there's a lot more inside the book um, so I, d- I don't quite know where I want to take you or where you'd like to go in this conversation but let, let me just because we're in the Freud Museum let, let's just focus in perhaps a little bit on the psychoanalytic and psychiatric side and um, it, it, it's well, I'll just say, it's quite unusual in the English-speaking world, apart from the few faces that I can see in this room, for psychoanalysts or people from that kind of psycho background to actually uh, think about the social sphere in quite the broad way that, that you have done. And I think it's very commendable. And I'd like you perhaps to iterate for those of us here what it is that you think that as a psychoanalyst and as a person with your particular kind of background, mm. you bring to this critique of neoliberalism that isn't yeah. available from, say, Wilkinson. And, and there is indeed a, a story to it. Um, I'm working in private practice as a clinician, as an analyst, but at the same time I'm working at university as well. So I'm into research and into teaching. And one of the main courses that I teach is clinical psychodiagnostics. Um, and of course, for the last 15 or 20 years, we have seen a steady increase in the idea that mental disorders are neurobiological, are genetically determined, etc., etc., etc. And there is no scientific proof whatsoever. Uh, this course functions in a paradigmatic way, so everybody stays convinced. Um, and when I, I had to teach uh, that kind of stuff, I won't. Maybe you could just say what yeah. you mean when you say a paradigmatic way, because your critique of ideology yeah. within paradigms is interesting. Well, uh, 
I mean, you can look at it from the point of view of uh, Foucault, uh, or from the point of view of the American, whose name escapes me, right? Yeah, Kuhn, uh, Thomas Kuhn, meaning that uh, it is a set of beliefs, and once a set of beliefs has uh, has been shared by a large number of people, it doesn't need to be proved any longer. It just perpetuates itself for a number of, of decades, even. That's happening right now. Everybody is convinced that it is neurobiological, that it is genetically determined, and if you look at the genuine scientific papers, there is no proof whatsoever, uh, which is really not strange. Uh, at the same time, there is enough, more than enough evidence, that most mental disorders have to do with socioeconomic situations, with social situations, uh, going from uh, family situations to larger uh, social uh, stuff. Uh, and then it becomes interesting especially if you, if you have to teach diagnostics, because a number of things have been changing. We don't see the same kind of neurosis that were treated by Freud and his daughter here in this house. We see different disorders. Uh, and that has to do with a change in, in the norms and values. That has to do with the change on the social level. Uh, let's say that uh, we have made a shift, a transition, from an, an, an over-regulated society to an under-regulated one in matters of sexuality. But we have an over-regulation on another level, and that makes people ill. So basically, it's the same over-regulation, but not so long, not anymore on the level of sexuality and male-female relationship on that level. You can do whatever you want, as long as you pay for it. Uh, we have a trouble with a different kind of regulation, the efficiency of the, the, the human being turned into a productive machine. And that makes people ill nowadays. That's so, so the expression of, I mean, what, what you find in the consulting room mm. is different. Yes. And the difference you think is to do in analyzing this book is yeah. to do with, with the various forms that the uh, rank and yank culture yeah. takes. Okay, so, so tell us a little bit more about the, the kinds of diagnoses that yeah. you might be asked to give yeah. to your patients and why you are asked to give them rather than to work with them in different ways. Yeah, basically, the, the shift that we have seen uh, in the consultation room is that we see much more anxiety uh, problems and uh, depression. Uh, depression has to do with the, the system of the loser, being called a loser. And if you, if you go back to Freud and his main studies on uh, depression, it's quite obvious that depression has to do with the loss of identity. And that's also the main complaint of someone who is who feels depressed. I don't mean anything. Uh, I would never mean anything for anyone. Uh, I can't succeed, etc., etc. So that's, that's basically depression. And it used to be related to personal relations. Nowadays, depression is related to the professional level. Because people fall out of a job, fall out of a professional career. Uh, anxiety, most, in most cases they are mixed. Anxiety has to do with the anxiety and the uncertainty uh, on, the, on the matters of labor, on the workflow. Uh, nobody is sure uh, of his job any longer. Uh, most of my younger colleagues are in a tenure track, meaning that they have, that they have to work very hard without, being, without having any certainty uh, about their career. It's very bad for women as well, because uh, if you want to combine a career and having children, well, you will do both of them uh, in a way that's not very satisfactory. So those are the main things that we see in a consultation room, anxiety and depression. And then the third one, of course, uh, is personality disorders, uh, which is basically identity disorder. Identity has become very unstable, very superficial, uh, and that has to do with the change in the system as well. And, and do you think... Because there are changes in the family which are linked to the system, and, and yeah. what happens there, and, and yeah. perhaps say a little bit about authority. A uh, little bit. <laughs> we were talking about it uh, half an hour ago. Uh, the, the family, as we used to know, doesn't exist any longer. We all know that, uh, and at the same time, we still uh, continue to use the, 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 the words family, father, mother, but it's completely different. Uh, just to give you one example, um, 
the fathers of the previous times didn't care about their children that much. My father, I had a very good father, but my father didn't care about my education or whatever that was tough for the females, for the mother and in the house. At the same time, he had lots of authority. Every father had authority at that time and didn't bother with his children. Nowadays, we have two kinds of fathers. We have the fathers who are just missing, who are not there. And we have the very conscious fathers who are trying to be as good as possible with their children. And they don't have any authority whatsoever left. So that's the paradox. They are much more into fatherhood and they don't have any authority left. Uh, and this has to do with a fundamental change in the symbolic system. But that's a whole different issue. We can go into that tomorrow morning, I'm afraid. People may want to ask some questions about that. I, I will ask you one more yeah. and then leave it to you. Um, you begin the book with a very, very graphic scene. Yes. And it's a scene, when I started reading it, I thought, oh my God, we're in Abu Ghraib. Um, we're, you know, we're, we're in the scene of, of torture. Um, and in fact, well, I don't, I don't want to spoil the pattern, let you do the punchline, but in fact, we're actually in an ordinary situation, an ordinary everyday happening, say. Now, I happen to have the, the great privilege of being freelance, and I don't work in any organizations, but you claim, you claim that, that in organizations, this particular form of event is not unusual. So can you say a little bit about these forms of bullying? Because I still yeah. find it quite hard to believe that it's there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's on the internet, so you can see it, if you don't believe it. Um, it's what I called it, uh, at a certain point, and of course, I did not invent that uh, expression. It's what I called the bicycle reflex, uh, kicking down and, and, and pushing upwards. If people uh, are put into... Uh, a situation in which they have to compete with everybody else, in which you have that rank and uh, yang system, you create aggression and you create uh, an, 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 yeah, a kind of a traumatic scenery in which the one who gets traumatized will try to get rid of it by traumatizing the other. We know that from clinical practice, so people who have been abused run a great risk of, of becoming abusers themselves. But that happens on the short time scale as well. You don't need to be abused when you are six years old and you're 27 to abuse somebody else. It, happen, it can happen within two weeks as well on the work floor. And this is what is happening all over. Uh, after that incident uh, in Belgium, there was a huge survey trying to because everything has to be quantified uh, today, uh, trying to find out if this was really exceptional or uh, if this was something that happened more than people uh, expected. And it turned out to be not exceptional at all, on the contrary. So this is a sign of the times, bullying on the work floor. But normal people, it is Abu Ghraib on the work floor, and it's almost the same. And, I mean, you, you, you talk very um, interestingly in the book about what's happened in terms of the quantification yeah. of all our evaluation systems, if you like, the quantification yeah. of everything, which is partially linked to the, of course, the arrival and takeover of the computer. Now, w what impact does that have on our uh, symbolic world, it makes on us, our everyday uh, life? It makes us stupid. It... it uh, that just to give you an example, uh, I've been working at university, at university for at least 25 years now, uh, and we have what we call the faculty meeting, and it used to be a very important meeting, because that is the meeting where we made important decisions. Um, and, of course, this meeting is a perfect, I would call it, is a perfect item to see the evolution. And uh, nowadays, the faculty meeting takes something like 25 minutes. It used to take half a day. Now it's 25 minutes. There's no discussion whatsoever. And every meeting starts with uh, spreadsheets. And based on the spreadsheets, the decisions are already taken. And nobody asks where the figures are coming from, how they have been assembled, uh, what uh, statistical operations have been done on it. And around the table, they are scientists, clever people who are working uh, in research 
There is no discussion whatsoever. The, the, the numbers are there and the decisions are made. That's it. So it makes us stupid. Stupid and uh, irresponsible. Okay. Um, it, it's not all gloom and doom. <laughs> no, it isn't. <laughs> it's changing. But, it but questions, please, from you. We just have a few minutes to do that. Are there any questions based on what Paul has said? Okay, I'll, I'll start here because there was a hand first. Thank you very much for your talk and for your book, which I'll enjoy any time intellectually and periodically. In fact, I read a quote from the Scottish referendum on independence, which was vital, alive, incredibly determined. So the way you structure things is so important. Sorry, have you got a question? Because oh, so little time. Sorry. And I'm not sure Paul's up on the Scottish well, independence. Really yeah. in to nation I think if you had a people's identity changes. Yeah. Well, I think, um, of course, it, it didn't follow the, that discussion as much as you, you must have done over here. But I think it is an advantage if that kind of discussion opens up a discussion about the values and about the ethics not so much about a romantic nationalism going back to whatever uh, medieval time. If it is a discussion whether you want this kind of uh, social system or another kind of social system, then I am over the discussion. Because it, it gives a political impetus to, to a con contemporary situation. And we haven't seen that kind of discussion for the last 15 years or 20 years, at least not in Belgium and not in, in Holland, uh, they were only discussing uh, about uh, the, the insurance rate and the, the, the banking system, not about social values. But it's an advantage, whatever the, the exit of the... But you do have it in, in terms of your populist politicians, don't you? You do always bring up the uh, perpetual yeah. questions of national identity. Yes. Uh, but their hidden agenda, which is not that much hidden, is purely economic, because that's always the case, and you must be aware of that. Uh, it's not about uh, one part of the country and nation, whatever, against the other. It's the richest part against the poorest part. Flanders nowadays is the richest part of Belgium, and they want to get rid of the southern part because they are poor. Just like Italy, the northern part is the richest, and they want to get rid of the south because they are poor. So, and it's hidden behind another agenda, uh, but you don't need to be that clever to see it. There, and then you Yes. Do you want to stand up so we can hear you better? I will give you an example. Uh, so the whole system 
um, comes down to evaluation, to rank and yank. And that happens already nowadays, at least in Belgium, with the toddlers. And we call it early detection. Not even early diagnosis, early detection. I'm, I'm a Canadian, so I'm a very sensible, for, very keen on, on, on what it signifies. Early detection. Uh, and they want to single out the children as early as possible to see whether they have a disorder or, or whatsoever. This is really stupid. Children are children. They have so many possibilities to, 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 to develop that whatever you can see in a two-year-old may not be there any longer when that child is three years of age or whatever. But nowadays they receive already a label uh, at that age. They are tested all over. But I'm not sure whether I will English words. A friend of mine uh, had a daughter who was at that time four years of age. It goes back to number of years. And uh, was invited. She, she uh, went to what you call kindergarten, nursery school. Uh, and uh, he was in, he and uh, his wife were invited to school for a, a parent, uh, evening. parent evening. Yes, I didn't know they had parent evenings at that uh, stage when my children were younger didn't exist. And they were told that Knippen, uh, what they were in English, Knippen, Knippen, the cuts, that the, and Vaardigheden, they were told that the cutting abilities of their toddler were not up to the mark. <laughs> the cutting abilities of a four-year-old were not up to the mark. So there was something wrong with the child. And uh, the father... <laughs> the scissor hands. The sc- scissor hands, yes. And uh, the father, who is a keen intellectual, started to love his head off, whatever, because she found it very amusing and, and didn't do much. We had a discussion uh, about it, and I said to him, just imagine that uh, this message is given to a parent who is 28 years of age, age. not you here in his late 30s, uh, but to uh, a father or mother who is 28 or 27. They will get anxious. There's something wrong with my child. My child will not be able to make it. We have to do something about it. And they start to get worried. And of course, then you have the whole mirroring system, that those worries are mirroring to the child, etc., Things are happening in that way nowadays. So it has an effect on very, very young children. And this is official, that detection system I'm talking about will be instituted by the government. It so is a very is interesting um, analysis of the uh, diagnostic and statistical manual in, in the book as well. Yes. Yes. Estella. about competition uh, because when I was uh, at school uh, there was lots of competition at that time as well uh, it depends on the ethical system in which competition takes place uh, we were raised after the, the second world war uh, within an ethics of community uh, we had to be very good we had to study very hard 
you know, to create something new, not in the first place for ourselves, uh, or indeed for ourselves in the plural. And nowadays, the competition within the contemporary ideology is only individual. You have to make it for you, as an individual, uh, not for the other, not for the community. And that's the big difference. And that was introduced into the school system and by and large into the society as such because we didn't recognize that it was an ideology. We thought that we got rid of ideology uh, in the early 70s, that was the Fukuyama, the end of history, the end of uh, ideology, and we didn't see that, uh, uh, that neoliberalism as an ideology was taking over, especially in, in the work, uh, in the corporate government, in the government, corporate world, and then afterwards in the educational system. So we missed that. Question right at the back, and then you. system, and I, I have mentioned it in my talk, but I didn't go into it that much. One of the dangerous things of this system is that it puts us individually apart, one from another. And one of the main reactions that I got to my book in uh, Belgium and Holland was that people started to talk about it, and that people who, who were sitting next to one another, who, has, who had been sitting next to one another for the last three or three years in the office, didn't knew that they had the same feelings about the way the job was organized. And the fact that they discovered that the other had the same opinion brought them together and there were people who started to react. Uh, so individualism, it is the classic uh, style, divide et impera, divide them and you will rule them. Uh, so the answer is, instead of being divided, unite, unite, come together with other people and start to do something. Uh, because on your own, you can't react. I think one of the interesting points in your book that you make is, is, is the way the individualism is actually, because, you know, when you think of individualism, you also think of the artist as a model, a creative model, and your form of individualism an economic model. But it also has, uh, as its, its regulating sphere, this, the growth parallel, growth of a very large bureaucracy, a regulatory bureaucracy. And I think that's... Uh, crucial in understanding what goes on in schools and universities um, and indeed throughout social services today. So, let's just another point. This question here. <laughs> Okay, you have two questions. Uh, first of all, I'm quite happy with your first question, which is more a remark um, about the uh, pessimistic undertone or even overtone of the book. The book was originally published in uh, Dutch in uh, mid-2012, uh, so that's 
almost three, two years ago. Uh, in the meantime, a number of things have changed. Uh, and if I would write a book now, it would have a different ending. It would uh, have a more optimistic uh, concluding chapter because a number of things are really changing. Uh, the, the book was actually finished before the economic meltdown, before the financial crisis. And the financial crisis has uh, operated as a wake-up call. And uh, Just to give you an example, uh, the Dutch language is a very limited language. We are only some 20 million people speaking and reading it. There have been published at least six books about democracy in the last year and a half. And they are selling huge numbers. People are talking again about politics. And they are written by people who are not into politics. That's the main thing about it. So there is an, an understream coming up uh, about a political consciousness that goes against the official politi politicians. Uh, so this is really amazing. And something is, 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 is happening uh, right now. So I'm not optimistic in that respect. Then the second thing about psychology, uh, in that respect I'm very pessimistic. So I have written a book which has not been uh, translated into English. The title uh, uh, was published some six years ago, five years ago. The title is The End of Psychotherapy. Uh, psychotherapy has become, by and large, part of this system. Just take the DSM, the Diagnostic Manual. They are all about social disorders. They are all about people who are not meeting the social criteria. And the uh, Friedmans are meeting people adjust to the social criteria. The most used word in the DSM is the, uh, the word to, in many different variations, but uh, uh, a certain char characteristic is either too much present or not enough present. And therapy consists of adjusting the, the too much or the too little. So this is psychology and psychiatry today. So I'm very pessimistic about that. Okay, um, could you, I think we don't have time for more than one question. We'll take one here. Sorry. Maybe two. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> one there and one here, and then we'll have to go downstairs and do a little bit. Yes, I'm, I'm Well, I think our reaction, first of all, should be an ethical reaction. That uh, we uh, function as a wake-up call in whatever function that we are operating. I teach at university, I work in clinical practice, 
uh, I am voicing this ethical position, and it, at least in my country, it gets attention. And then, I don't do it in the reverse way because otherwise my voice my voice will not be heard. Now the second uh, question about authority. Uh, this is really the big issue uh, because it's obvious that um, this system functions in a totally different way in matters of authority. Uh, it's also obvious for me that patriarchy is finished. And it's also obvious that we should not return to that situation. It's that fundamental. Uh, and it's also obvious for me that we should not uh, try or advocate a return to the period of patriarchy. Uh, although some analysts uh, are thinking in that way. So the big question is how will we uh, think authority in a post-Enron era? When we are heading towards, towards a post-Enron era. And uh, we were talking half an hour ago about the, the uh, arrival again of feminism and the fact that it is really necessary that we, we need feminism again uh, because this neoliberal system is against uh, femininity and against the, the rights that we had acquired in the 70s. So that's, that's the big question but I don't know the answer. I'm sorry, we're, you can talk more downstairs. Yeah. Let me just take the last question here, please. The, well, the, the, agenda, agenda the agenda is that uh, the, the richest part of the country wants to get rid of the poorest part. That's the agenda. Okay. But what are they saying? Uh, that depends on the country, of course. In, in, more or less the same, same thing. More I mean, or less, yes. Maybe not uh, uh, in, in, in Belgium, okay. it is hidden behind a nationalistic, and historical... All right, I, I call this work very, very hard. <laughs> Having traveled here today, uh, please give him a big hand. And, um, and thank him and come downstairs and have a drink and um, have a look at the books. <laughs>